Hi, I'm Adam Sobel, and this is Deep Convection. My guest on today's episode is Amy Clement. This one was really a pleasure to record, and I'm so happy to put it out there. Amy's a brilliant climate scientist. It's hard to overstate the importance and the impact of her research on our understanding of the Earth's climate system and on how we interpret our field's predictions for the future. But Amy's also an amazingly thoughtful and articulate person, and we got into many different topics in addition to her science. A theme that runs through Amy's entire career is the relative roles of the atmosphere and ocean in controlling various modes of variability in the climate system, starting with the tropical Pacific and the El Nino Southern Oscillation or ENSO phenomenon, which she worked on for her PhD and still does many years later, but which has expanded in the years to include other phenomena as well. We talk in depth about two pieces of research Amy has done in the last few years that are so important that that word, important, seems far too weak. They are frankly shocking. Both of these pieces of research have overturned fundamental understandings about aspects of the climate system that couldn't be more consequential for predictions of our future. With both ENSO and the so-called Atlantic Multidecadal Oscillation, Amy and her co-authors have shown that the ocean plays a much less active role than previous research had suggested, and that nearly all of the scientists working in this field, and I certainly count myself among them, had believed. Some aspects of this work are still controversial, and we talk about those debates, but in my view, this work is absolutely compelling. I'm convinced by it, and I think the conclusions are so important that, as I told Amy, I've been giving talks about it myself, even though it's not my work. As usual, though, we started with Amy's life and career. We talked about her first exposure to science as a kid on Long Island, and then her education as an undergraduate in physics, and then a graduate student in earth science at Columbia, where, for her PhD, she worked with both Mark Kane and Richard Seeger, both of whom have been guests on this podcast. I asked Amy whether she chose to do her PhD in this field out of social consciousness and concern about global warming, and her answer was different from nearly everyone else to whom I've asked it. We also talked at some length about where that social consciousness has led Amy now to working on climate adaptation with a range of groups in Miami, where she lives, and why she started doing this after waking up the morning after the presidential election of 2016. And we reflect more broadly on whether science is the right career for someone who wants to make a difference on the climate problem. To an extent not true of any of our guests so far, Amy and I are contemporaries. I'm a few years physically older, but we got our PhDs within about a year of each other, and we've proceeded through our careers in parallel. We also overlapped for about a year here at Columbia, about 20 years ago, when she was a postdoc here briefly, and I was just starting as a new faculty member. This was right before Amy went to the University of Miami, where she's been ever since and is currently a professor. So we've known each other for most of our respective careers now. And whether because of our contemporariness or not, this was a particularly interactive conversation with a lot of back and forth, and I really appreciated that. Honestly, one of the best things about doing this podcast, apart from whether anyone else listens or not, is just the space it creates to have a kind of conversation that might not happen otherwise, but that's truly worth having. This is a great example of that, and I hope you get out of it at least a little fraction of what I did. So let's get to it. Here's my conversation with Amy Clement. So let's see. I don't really have that much of a plan for these. Okay. But uh, we found that a good place to start is with people's biography. Okay. If you don't mind. No problem. Starting like... Where are you born? (laughs) (laughs) That's the natural place to start, right? Okay. I was born in Boston in, I think... Cambridge, or right where my my parents, my dad was at um, Harvard Business School. At the oh, time. okay. He's he's faculty. Uh, no, 
no, no, he was, he was a, student. a student at Harvard oh, okay. Business School at the time. Yeah. And um, lived outside Boston in Marblehead. Maybe you know it. I do. I mean, it's not really, well, but I've been yeah, there. It's a yeah. beautiful place. Until until I was 11, then we moved to Long Island, um, where my parents, where I went to high school. Remind me of the Big, town. Huntington. Yeah. Huntington High School, HHS, is the best. <laughs> it's not too far out, right? I mean, it's it's uh, right at the Suffolk, Nassau border. Right, okay. Approximately an hour and five minutes by train, which I took. So went to high school there and then came to Columbia for undergrad. Uh, I worked as an undergrad. Um, I spent two summers working in France at, at Ifremer, which is a oh. um, oceanographic lab there. Ha- I, I had friends whose parents worked there, and I happened in. Long story. Okay, anyway. wait, so slow, let's slow okay. down a little bit. So, so where where does the interest in science start? Oh, okay. So I um, I took calc and physics in high school, and I was really excited about the idea that you could, you know, that that calculus was the foundation for mechanics, and it was like a light bulb went off. You know, like oh, look at these differential equations are you know the laws of um, you know, Newton's laws. Basically. So it wasn't a big interest for you before that? Uh, no, actually it was, I guess I should say. I remember in, in, in uh, I guess the first interest was probably in middle school. Mm. I was in this environmental education pr- magnet program within the public school. Uh. And they, 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 it was a, you know, all day. We, we spent three years in middle school with the same 20 kids in this program, which yeah. was like nerd, like nerdy, um, and we did all these really cool, um, ex, you know, experiential education um, activities. Like we went to Queens College has has a uh, research lab out on out in Huntington um, in the old um, in Quandry Hall. It's called an old estate, uh-huh. and they do a bunch of environmental research and outreach there. And so we spent you know su- we spent you know a week there every year and. So I guess that got me interested. I lived in a town where, um, in Huntington is where um, Cold Spring Harbor Labs is, where oh, Watson yeah. and Crick work. So I was like, oh. there was this whole like allure of science. And I I would call up and try to get la- work there in the summers. In high school. You know, like, in high school, I wanted to work. Like, can I clean a beaker and do, and I just want to be around it. Did they let you? No. <laughs> okay. I mean, like even still today, we have that problem is like you have a high school student and you'd love for them to come in, but you don't really have the infrastructure to do that in a research environment well, unless you have programs like I know Lamont does. Well, it's especially hard for our field, I think. I mean, the fields where there are beakers to clean are mm-hmm. a little easier. Right. And so I think that forms people's expectation right. and people call us and it's right. like, well, yeah. you want to watch me type on a computer screen for Although probably high school students have programming skills that could be applied. Maybe. Maybe some. Yeah. Yeah. But okay. So you did, so you have this, so then calculus and physics in high school. That's solidified. I would say solidified. the, you know, the sort of my, my trajectory. And that's when I knew, that's when I decided I wanted to study physics mm. at, at, when I, when I went to college, hmm. and then I went, I started that in, at Columbia. Right. Okay. So undergraduate at Columbia, but you already were working in oceanography in the summer. So somehow that connection. Yeah. Happened um, early. Too. Oh, it, I guess it happened the summer after my freshman year because I had gone to France as an au pair um, ah. this summer before my freshman year, and I met friends that had an an um, 
and uh, uh, friends that worked at this oceanographic lab in Brittany, which is called Ifremer. Yeah. And, I don't know if you've heard of it. I there's, have, there's, okay. but I don't know it well. Um, and so I made friends with them. And so the, my freshman year I took, is this okay? Yep. I took um, How to Build a Habitable Planet with Wally. They let me in as a freshman, even though I wasn't supposed to. And so I got really interested. So that's a graduate course. No, no, it's oh. an undergrad oh. class yeah. as a freshman. They, it was for juniors and seniors, but they let me in because right. I was determined. So I took that in the spring of my, my freshman year, and then I went back to France, and I got a job working in ocean. So I guess my interest in oceanography and climate science started then, and what, that's why I got a job. What would you do summer. in the summer of those summers? I... Learned to code in C in French. I was developing software to um, correct for, they had a um, side-scanning sonar, Uh and they were just processing the travel times, but they weren't correcting for the change in density um, of the seawater. So they had to, we had to apply some I was like building software to apply corrections because the edges looked like the the topography went down, you know, like right underneath the ship, it was accurate. But as it went out, it kind of, the, the beams bended, bent. So it looked like it was deeper out on the edges of the side scan. They were trying to map the bottom or? Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, they were. Okay. Doing, so that was the, the French were really progressive in that they were doing a lot of um, ocean bottom exploration. They had this partnership with, I think, people at Le Mans right. where they were, they had carved out the bottom of the ocean and some were mapping out parts and others. And they were really interested in finding the Titanic. Oh. Yeah. So that was part of why they were developing this. And you said, so you must have learned French already somewhere. Yeah. I had learned it in um, little in high school and then I took it in at Columbia required to take a language. But you So said- I, I had taken a year of college French. And then you said coding in C in French. Is that yeah. different than coding in C in English? Yeah, because I didn't know anything. And so there was an engineer that was working with me, and he was trying to teach me, but he didn't speak any English. Oh, right. But the C so was the same. The C was the same, <laughs> but he still had to explain, like, we do this because of this, and we put this here, and this, we find this. You know, it, was, right. it was a little mind-boggling, but uh-huh. I, I also, you know, it was really interesting cultural experience, you know, being, being it. It, working in another country in another language at that time, I was very, um, I would say, you know, I had no clue. Sounds <laughs> fun though. I kept making real serious full pause, like having a snack at the computer, which like, oh yeah, we do, we don't do that here. Right. Like, don't, <laughs> you don't eat while you're working. It's like, why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. Right. I guess in hindsight, yeah, I probably would have done the same, but yeah, yeah, I can understand now. So two summers of that. Two summers of that, and then I, um, and then I started working with uh, here at Lamont. The summer after, I worked with Bill Menke. I worked with Bill Menke doing um, working on seismometers. Then I worked with Klaus Jacob, and I did um, a project looking at um, processing seismic waves from aftershock data from two different sites: a big Armenian earthquake and then the Big Bear earthquake in california you're looking at me like i know but i don't know earthquakes i know and i'm feeling like i'm looking at you because i should know this but i don't it's okay i don't another earthquake this is a really long time ago like 30 years ago so um and then um 
And then I was, uh, and I worked with Bill Ryan also, which is like my favorite person to work with. How did with. you pull off this like tour was, of Lamont? I was doing it during school. Oh, I see. I was working on, I was working part-time at Lamont during the year. So you did like four different internships or something or three or? Basically, yeah. So it was between summers and during the year and they, I, I kind of moved around wow. working with them. I worked with Bill on the side scanning sonar thing. So my experience in France at Ephraimer, oh, uh-huh. I could was applying the same technique there um, right. to what to their data. Yeah. So yeah. I mean by the so, so then wait, did you apply to graduate school straight through yeah. or yeah. straight out. So you were like the best right. educated applicant in terms of knowing what was gone in the Oh place, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was I had a <laughs> and I had also taken a class with Arnold's Gordon. So I originally applied to work with him because mm-hmm. I was interested in being an oceanographer yeah. before I knew what an oceanographer was. <laughs> right. I mean, what real oceanographer, like who goes seagoing. out to sea. Yes. Seagoing. Sorry, not real. A seagoing oceanographer was. Yeah. So. You had worked with real oceanographers in France, yes. it sounds like. Yeah, me. that's true. I had. Yeah. yeah. Um, but then, um, yeah. So, so I knew it was going on. My grades were not like super stellar. I wouldn't say, you know, I had, mm. I wasn't, I wasn't really well prepared for Columbia physics undergrad program mm-hmm. coming out of a public high school compared to my peers who w- were much better prepared. Yeah. And so I always felt like I was kind of a step behind and, yeah. and I also did a semester abroad in Paris. So that kind of put me off cycle with, a you know, so I actually ended up with a minor in French literature and that kind of, you know, so I, I was spread a little bit thin and I had to take the physics ACT Mm-hmm. Or was it the ACT to get into grad school well, GRE, or the subject test? The subject yes. GRE, yeah. Oh God, I, I did horribly on that, and you know, so I don't think on paper I wasn't the best, probably applicant in that way, but I had so much experience. So did you? Ha- but you knew. I mean, the the graduate school was like no doubt in your mind. I mean, what? I mean, it was clearly on that path, whether I knew it or not. You know, I was like, I loved research. Yeah. I just wanted to be doing it. But I, I mean, for some people, it's the path of least resistance that you're good at school. But in your case, no. you actually knew pretty well what you were getting into. I of think all these, so. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know if it's revisionist sort of looking back and it all makes, you know, how these sort of these paths you end up on. But um, I suppose there was a certain amount of inertia, you know, there where um, I was in the Lamont environment. Everybody around was getting a PhD, yeah. except I mean, so I was in that milieu already. Well, but also you had a ton of research experience. You understood right. I knew what, what it is. I knew what research was, right, yeah. in terms no, of No, a lot of people radio. don't understand yeah. that going into it. Right, coding, and okay. that part of research. So how did you end up then doing what you eventually did? Which we... um, wow, you really want to know all this, huh? Yeah. <laughs> um, I did a master's with Arnold where he had collected some data. Um, they had just done this cruise in the Benguela Sea looking at Agullis eddies that were coming in. They had some new equipment, the ADCP. Uh-huh. And I was looking at that the and calculating. Acoustic Doppler current, current profiler. profiler. Right. Yeah. So instruments yeah. to see yeah. what's going on yeah. in the ocean from yes. the ship. Yeah. Exactly. So they had been doing hydrographic sections mm-hmm. and getting the geostrophic balance flow. And then we were looking at the ADCP to see if that was correct. And it was turned out it wasn't. Because it wasn't including the, the 
you know, the right the circular part of the flow. So I'm just going to translate for a second. So the yeah. hydrographic <laughs> means the ship oh, is going okay. along, measuring temperature and salinity by actually dropping stuff right. down into the ocean, right. getting the density distribution. Yes. And then the geostrophic flow is yeah. using the momentum equation to infer right. the currents, yes. but the ADCP is measuring the currents Actual directly. Currents. So you're comparing it. Right. Right. Okay. And they were, they were higher. The ADCP currents were higher around. Oh, well, the other part was that they were seeking out eddies. Um, okay. And so they were, they were looking at some of the early altimeter data. So this would have been like in the, in the early 90s. So looking at altimeter data, finding eddies, taking the ship, going and sampling them across with ADCP and the um, CTD cast, the, where they get the hydrographic measurements. Right. So early 90s. Okay, let's actually do right? math. Because I think you're about... But no, it would be 90. It would have been 90. Yeah, when did you start? Because you're like... I started in 93. Right. Me too. But Me I'm too? older than you because I had years off. So we're like okay. the same exact really? academic generation... Age. No, not the same physical age, but close. But <laughs> the yeah, same academic age. Same academic oh, age. That's yeah, intimidating. Approximately. What are you talking about? <laughs> For whom? <laughs> <laughs> For me. No, come on. Um, so okay, so right, where are we? So physical oceanography with art. Do you ever go to sea? No. So that was maybe part of the problem. Is I thought I was going to be going to sea, and then I didn't. To? And because Arnold had these big, I wanted to. The, Arnold had all these big, a big project in Indonesia, but they were really constrained on how many people they could bring and so I could never get on the cruises so I was just analyzing right. data yeah so I was like oh this is what an oceanographer does I'm not I you know I'm not I it wasn't holding my interest and part of the problem is that I was interested in um global climate and I was yeah. sort of having trouble wrapping my head around how these agullus eddies were linked in any significant way. Right. I, I understand the arguments for that they were at, at the time, yeah. but I wasn't convinced Right at the time. But maybe it wouldn't have hurt if you'd gotten on the ship. It would might have changed things. It might have it might have yeah. I don't know. I never went on a ship. I even there were a couple opportunities and then I ended up not going because it was later in my PhD and it was going to take like 45 days out of my, you know, and I I was I wasn't yeah. I was Working but, on research. But then. the lesson is, you know, bring the students in the field if you have a chance because... You might lose them. You might lose them. Yeah. That <laughs> is a, true. Um, okay. So, but, so, so, so the eddies Okay. So the eddies weren't doing it for me in terms of global climate. Yeah. Although people are still arguing today that that's an important part. And, and maybe it is on, you know, paleoclimate timescales. And the drive for global climate had just come during your time of doing yeah. all these things? Or? Yeah, because I was, I mean, I was taking or, classes with Wally. Yeah. He was a big influence yeah. on my thinking, just like everybody else at Lamont at the time. Right. Wally Broker. Yeah. Yeah. And RIP. Yeah. Um, and Arnold was also talking a lot about global climate. It was a time of the world ocean circulation experiment. So they were doing mm -hmm. all these, like they were really mapping out the ocean in an unprecedented way and and looking at the whole uh, global ocean transports, um, measuring them. Mm -hmm. And um, so they were linking them to climate. It was really an interesting time in the 90s, I think, to the whole ocean and climate concept was was being formulated between Wally and the paleo view of things, Arnold and the Woese connection, and then I would say Manabi being nearby and the global climate, you know, coupling and 
looking at the role of the ocean in, in climate change, climate variability, all kind of happening together at the same time in the 90s. And also right around the time you started Toga, Cora just right. happened. Yeah, actually. So I haven't even to gotten to Mark yet because right. I've been obsessed with the Atlantic recently. Right. Um, and that's all kind of, I've come kind of full circle thinking about those issues again. But yeah. so Mark, um, Mark uh, saved me <laughs> in terms of- Mark Kane. Mark Kane um, saved me in terms of uh, providing the kind of the intellectual connection that I needed mm. to the global climate. Yeah. So he, I, you know, I was wrapping up things with Arnold, finishing, finished my PhD thesis, or, or sorry, my master's thesis with him. We, and then we don't even have a master's thesis now. Do we did, we did then. We had, I had to get a master's, an MS, an MPhil. We still have that, but there's no thesis. Well, it's a paper. I guess there's a paper. We don't call it a thesis. I had to defend it. All right. Yeah, we sort of, yeah, there's a, you still sort of do, but they don't call it that. Okay, anyway. Yeah, something like that. Anyway, Great. I wrapped and you did up. did that on the eddies. On the eddies. Yeah, okay. It wasn't even, you know, it didn't end up being in my PhD thesis understand. You know, I know. And so then I, at the time, I was kind of, you know, not being drawn into these problems that Arnold was working on, and he really I don't know. It didn't, it wasn't going anywhere. And I was driving with Richard Seeger home and sort of bemoaning this. Well, I'm not really sure, you know, where, where this is going. Richard I, was a he postdoc was a, or he was already? Probably a postdoc yeah, at the okay. time. And he said, well, Mark Kane has this idea that La Nina's cause ice ages. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that that's something that I... That just piqued my interest. So I went and talked to Mark, and then we started working together. Okay. I was looking back over the papers of yours from this time um, last night, and there's a clear, there's some few different things there, although the clear threads that tie them all together. The first one, if I understand, is the thermostat yeah. one, mm -hmm. which I didn't check how many citations it has, but it must be a lot. It's quite influential first paper. So. Yeah. Um, most of us don't have that that kind of impact so early. Although I don't know if you saw it then or not, but that it was yeah. that it was going to be as you know no. a, a, as powerful as it was. It did get quite a reaction even at the time. Right. Well, maybe. I mean, not. I wouldn't say positive. It was very controversial. <laughs> I re I can tell you, I got a we got a letter from Isaac Held that I saved. Yeah. It, do you want to hear this? Well, well, first, why don't yeah, you say ask a your couple question. minutes of yeah. what it okay. – Maybe you instead of I yeah. should say what it yeah, was about. No, you. I'd like to hear. No, because I'm going <laughs> to screw it up. Okay. I mean, it was – I mean, okay, I'll do my best and then yeah. you correct me. Uh -huh. I'll do try to do this like a sentence or two. Yeah. It's basically the idea is that um, the ocean thermostat is – is I actually have the abstract on my screen so I oh, can cheat. But, God. but the, the ocean thermostat, Writing the idea is, is that you um, – it's the equatorial ocean where El Nino's, equatorial Pacific, where El Nino's and La Nina's happen and which has a big impact on the whole rest of the climate, um, operates in such a way that um, there's a negative feedback such that if you try to warm it, then the warming starts at the surf from the surface, like radiatively, whether it be by the sun or by CO2, then the surface gets warmer, but the water below it stays where it was, at least for a while. And so because there's some mixing between the water below and the water above, that damps the warming, basically. Right. Yeah. It's more or less like well, that. That's, and that's the beginning. And then because in, in, in the tropical Pacific, if you perturb the, you know, the east-west gradient, it sets off a 
coupled feedback that amplifies that. So not only does it warm by less, mm. it actually cools in the simulations that we did. The Equatorial so, Pacific, uh, I mean, the the not the whole Pacific cools, but the... Equi Eastern Equatorial Eastern Equatorial Pacific. Pacific. So it yeah. looks more La Nina-like. Yeah, it actually brings up more cold water. Right. And so, I mean, I know we're going to get to this, but we could jump ahead and say that this is still sort of yeah. a battle you guys are fighting in the sense that the, mm -hmm. the prediction is then that as the climate gets warmer, it should look more La Nina-like, which is the opposite of what the global climate models right. do, but looks sort of like what has happened in the latter right. 20th century and 21st century. So it, right. it seems that this is a, even though you're still fighting some battles over it, it's still very much a live thing. So I this first so. paper of yeah. yours is right at the center of a sort of 25 year long um, uh, yeah. uh, well, very and very consequential scientific debate. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I mean, I, I, um, I, you know, obviously wasn't anticipating that at, at the time, but what was interesting about, I mean, we were originally doing the experiments to test the idea that we could cause a permanent La Nina in order to start an ice age. Cause that was, remember the, the question that Mark was asking. So yeah. we said, what if we just took this simple model and, um, and tried to warm it and, or tried to cool it. And we, I think we probably were thinking that if we cooled it, that it might produce a La Nina and that would have teleconnections to the, to the ice sheets of the Northern hemisphere. I think that was the original thinking, but that's not how it played out. And instead this, negative feedback mechanism you know that's what emerged in that model right um and then the other um so you did a few more things on around this and then also i mean obviously related you did end up doing a bunch of things aimed at paleo climate yeah. where yeah. I, I mean i need you to explain them to me because i haven't honestly read all the papers but um, my understanding of the basic Big picture idea is that some of the major climate changes of the last, you know, in the paleo record, mm -hmm. in, the, in the geologic record, which a lot of the paleo community tends to attribute to things happening near the poles as being the right. ultimate source of, of why everything changes and that radiates to lower latitudes. You guys were arguing the opposite, that right. things happen in the tropical Pacific because of the tropical Pacific's own reasons and that then controls the planet. And there were sort of a few papers that had that right. flavor. Right. Um, but I'm yeah. sure you can do better at me at saying where that came from and what. Yeah, and that what they was. Were about. I, I would say the central idea was to say, can we change the tropical climate in a meaningful way that would then impact the higher latitudes um, and the growth of ice sheets? Yeah. Really, the idea that that you could cause a permanent La Nina that would then have a teleconnection to the the North America, Arctic, Europe, and produce ice growth. So this is Mark's original idea, yeah. basically. But yeah, but it, we didn't end up really getting quite there because what ended up happening was we used the zbiak Kane model in this way that a lot of people found absurd but and, and forced it with the, the known orbital forcings over the last you know, 500,000 years. So changing the angle of the sun and so on. Yeah. According to the Milankovitch right. cycles. Right. Why, why did people find it absurd? Well, I, so I gave a talk as a grad student at, at, um, MIT. Yeah. MIT. And, and Carl Wunsch came up to me after and he, like for a half an hour railed, you can't, how can you expect that? Um, how can you 
use this model when it's so clearly wrong. It's, you know, anomalies about the modern climate. It's missing all kinds of climate physics. It's true that aren't, aren't there. Um, yeah. and, and yet running it on these timescales when presumably those other physics matter. Right. And so, you know, I mean, at the time I was, I was pretty undaunted by that. It's like, well, we, you know, this is a, a test of a particular mechanism and it, this is what it does. And that's not to say that, you know, if, if there's other things that happen, we, we, but we can still test whether this, there's any evidence of this mechanism in the observational record. And, and that's really what he objected to. Like you can look at a mechanism, but you can, why would you test it? It's obviously wrong. I'm kind of impressed, actually. What impresses me about this story is you're being undaunted. I mean, so yeah. you, the graduate student goes to MIT, gives the yeah. talk. One of the really yeah. top guys in the field right. says, this is nonsense, and you don't blink. That's well, that's, uh, that's that's great. I love it. I, I do remember not being th too thrown off by it because I was so advanced in my graduate career that I, I, I felt like I knew what I was doing. And I had been put to the test here because... Like I mentioned, a lot of the work did get a lot of criticism from Manabi, the thermostat paper from Manabi and from Isaac Held. Like yeah. I mentioned, we, we was back in the day where we used to send out preprints of the paper yeah. when you submitted it. And Isaac, I saved the letter, wrote a, wrote a letter to Mark saying, this is so obviously wrong, I'm paraphrasing, um, it's irresponsible to publish it or something like that. <laughs> so it was the same idea. It was like, this is such a simplified set of physics that you, um, it's, it can't be right. Um, yeah. that you're missing the connections to higher latitudes. You're missing all the processes that control the mean state because it was an anomaly right. model. But if we go, so I, since we've already been kind of, um, jumping around a little bit. I mean, if we think about now, not just about the thermostat, but about these ideas about uh, the tropical Pacific's influence over paleo timescales, how, what's your view now on this subject? Okay. How right were you in your, well, in, from your current perspective? The, so we didn't end up, like I said, we didn't quite get to the point where we were able to test the influence of the tropical Pacific outside the, um, on the higher latitudes. What we did get into was looking at the history of ENSO yeah. and that the paleo history of ENSO, I would say really opened up some of that work that not just we were doing, but other people yeah. were starting to do, um, to hypotheses to test about how does ENSO change with climate. Right. And I would say that really, you know, that's an ongoing topic today. And, and I would say, so the work that I ended up doing, um, the work we ended up doing in the paleo world that we were originally trying to say produce a permanent La Nina that would have impacts around the world ended up looking at ENSO variability in its right. history. So, so when I talked to Mark, you know, we talked about his trajectory and getting mm -hmm. to Lamont and, and doing the ENSO work, which was like whatever, 10 years before you or maybe a little less than that, mm -hmm. and then is getting interested in paleo. But so, so now... You know, he's known for being a dynamicist who did paleo, but am I correct that you were the first vector of, the, I mean, yeah. in other words, you were the first to really yeah. do this. I, I think so. Because it became a big thing, the tropical Pacific role in paleo, but it seems to me it started from you pretty much. There were people that were generating paleo records from the tropics. Yeah, but not dynamicists trying to. Um, right. So 
um, well, there were people that were starting to do at the time. Oh, Kutzbach. Okay, I don't really know. John I know the Kutzbach. Name, I don't really know him. So he was uh, did the paleo and and Manabi too, not so much paleo and so, but Kutzbach did all the work on the mid African or mid Holocene African humid period, um, and uh, that goes way back to some like some of the first climate modeling experiments at all. Yeah. And they were doing that. But I would say with the focus on ENSO, um, so uh, Lou was starting to do it around the same time too. Mm-hmm. Um, and Dejan's son. Uh, people were starting to think about it at the time. So yeah. okay. Um, I, I think what we did that was really, that that made a big difference was that we generated because it was such a simple model, we generated time series. Yeah. And that made it much more accessible to people yeah. that were generating time series. Right. As opposed to running a climate model for like 50 years at, you know, at the, in the mid Holocene or something like that, which was basically what we were doing at the time, which now seems crazy. <laughs> right. Well, no, but this is, I mean, so you had you kind of like jump ahead to do something that other people felt was premature to do because right. you took sort of what must have looked like a shortcut, right. and then you had to show that well, the idea is the idea, and right. and this is a way to start. And I mean, right. it seems it proved pretty convincing in the end. Well, I mean, and still the thermostat, the mechanism is still at play. I would say as a yeah. as a plausible mechanism for cha- how the Pacific changes. I mean, well, my reading of the literature is that the thermostat is definitely there. It's only the fight is only over whether it wins over mm-hmm. over other things that over, go well, the other way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It, uh, it's definitely there in the mo- even in the models. So my student Pedro Denizio, he showed that in in climate models, he, you know, calculated that that thermostat term, which is the mean upwelling of the anomalous temperature gradient, and it's definitely there in climate and experiments with climate models so i know because i reviewed that one. Oh, you and, did and that's why i just said what i said because that, oh my, my impression of this comes from that paper Good. Uh, in particular. 2009 yeah that i think that was the one yeah yeah wow. but i think yeah i think we've well is there anything i mean we should get past your um phd soon but <laughs> but is there anything else you, i mean do you ha- you want to say about it that's besides the papers you wrote i mean well, yeah i do because you didn't mention the thing that was most impactful to me in my phd thesis which is the work i did with richard that work was i would say like the most significant the most intellectually deep um the uh, work that i have i probably even still done to this day so remind us what it was about. <laughs> so, um, well, we did these experiments where we turned off all ocean heat transports in a couple GCM. Mm-hmm. And, um, Which by those, that point where the couple GCMs were getting to be sort of plausible only right. first. We, I mean, that was kind of early in the days of we were, them being good enough to use. That's right. And we were doing it with the GIS model, which had just made the leap from, a, you know, a like a 10 by 10 degree model to more like a five by five degree model in the atmosphere. Right. Yeah. And so, and they, so we, I don't even remember why we did this experiments. We turned off the ocean heat transport and looked at the climate response to that. If the ocean transported no heat. Right. So you probably know that when, or when you talk to Richard, you'll hear about how that led to 
this result about the Gulf Stream not causing Europe right. to be warmer than other lo- longitudes. Yeah. So that's, I would say, started, he may have a different version, but um, we did that experiment. And I remember the day where I plotted the mean temperatures that, that resulted in a slab model that has no ocean heat transport. And you could still see this tilting of the isotherms where the, um, in, the, in the subtropics, the western parts of the basin were warmer than the eastern parts of the basin, even right. with no upwelling in the east or Gulf Stream in the west. Right. So, yeah. And then in the mid-latitudes, it was the opposite. Yeah. So it was warmer in the western parts of the basin and colder in the mm. eastern parts of the basin. Right. I remember that. I remember the plot that I made. Yeah. But I think, so I do remember... Richard's later work on this, I think. I mean, he wrote the paper later about how the Gulf Stream isn't so yeah. important, but th- that was building on this earlier one that yeah. And so the earlier one that Richard and I wrote, it never got, it got rejected because we were trying to argue that the Gulf Stream wasn't responsible, and we got rejected because people said we never said that the Gulf Stream was responsible. Oh, okay, wait. Right. So, so we have to just summarize this for the people okay. who don't know this. So let me see if I can say what the basic message is, not the physics that you just described, but the basic logic is that for centuries, really, people have believed that Europe is warm mm-hmm. for its latitude because the Gulf Stream brings warm water up right. there. And you guys were saying, in other words, that the ocean is moving. The, the Gulf Stream mm-hmm. is taking the warm water from lower latitudes right. and, and from the east west side and bringing it over. And you guys said, well, we stopped that from happening artificially in the model yeah. and Europe stays pretty warm. Compared so to other longitudes yeah. at the same latitude. Right. right. Relative to where the sun right. is, I mean, right. basically. And so it's right. not the fact that the ocean is moving. It's that it's downstream from the ocean right. full stop, which right. is already warmer than the land in wintertime. Plus the rock, there was yeah. a role for the Rockies. Because then you get some some southerly flow downstream of the Rockies. This was not my work. This is work that Richard went on to do with Dave Battisti. That's what I remember. But, um, yeah. So take out the Rockies and the flow is really zonal. When But when you have the Rockies in it, you end up with more southerly flow coming into Europe, which is bringing. So right. it's not just downstream of the ocean. It's also down, it's, it's bringing air from warmer latitudes to europe the mean flow so this so this was basically a side i mean in other words it's related to the rest of your thesis but only in a vague way i mean it's just another thing you did well it was something we did because i can't remember why um anyway we did it and so what but the piece of my thesis and like you say was a side maybe a side project, but it was really an understanding of the mean, what are the controls on the mean tropical climate? And it did have some questions that were grounded in the paleoclimate research, which were, can you warm up the, can the tropical climate get warmer than it is today? Yeah. Or, or can it get much colder than it is today? And, or what are the mechanisms that control the mean tropical temperature? Right. I mean, just what I'm impressed by is is not just, you know, that you were productive and wrote a lot of good papers, but also that you're sort of thinking like a senior scientist already in that the sense that you had sort of some big questions and you were working on different pieces of them with different people as a graduate well, student. I mean, so Richard was a big influence on that part of the thesis. Yeah. Um, and I would say, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I... I 
struggled so much, like I see students struggling today, like, why am I doing this? How is this connected to anything that is important? You know, Did so you really, of course. I mean, a lot of people, so I, one thing, because I took a few years off, one thing I saw when I was a student is that people who went straight through, some yeah. of them have junior midlife crisis where they think, do I really want to be doing this? Right. Is this the life that right. I want? And yeah. so on. Yeah. It doesn't sound up to now like that happened to you, but. I mean, I remember, I wouldn't say it was a, so much as of, of a life crisis for whatever reason, but I, it was an intellectual crisis. I, I mean, I experienced those throughout. I guess what I'm asking is, did you doubt your career path at any point? Um, I mean, I always questioned why, you know, I, I really love the outdoors mm. and I ended up, you know, and I wanted to go into the field of climate because I thought I'd be an ocean, seagoing oceanographer. <laughs> and then I end up sitting behind a computer right. and that's all I've ever done in science. Right. So, but I do have a balance of that in my own life. So yeah. But I mean, you never thought, geez, maybe I should go to law school or something, whatever. I mean, you never had that. I'm sure I had that thought, but it didn't last long enough to provoke yeah, okay. <laughs> well, any A lot of people do. A lot of people do go through that at some point, if, especially if they never did anything else. They At some point, they think, yeah. four years in, it's like, is this really? Well, I mean, I would say I would still have, and I, I'm sure everybody in research has this, is, uh, well, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people that I know is like, like this is such a this is such a luxury to be able to think like this. And yeah. there are important questions, but do we really need more science in order to reduce vulnerabilities to people, to their, you know, to climate change? Do we really need more science? This is, yeah, I wanted to talk about this. Should we go straight there? We I, can because. I, yeah. So tell me your yeah. thought. So this is a question I was yeah. going to ask you eventually yeah. is exactly this. Right. I'm, I've struggled with it right. as well. And yeah, I'm asking it to other people. Yeah. So tell me your so, what's the answer? Um, well, I don't think we need more science in order to convince people that climate is changing. I think there's still important science questions to answer. I do science because I, what I feel is, let's say, um, a significant contribution is um, training people mm. um, to broaden their minds, I guess. So you think the educational role is the most important? Yeah, and not just te teaching classes, but mentoring people and also mm -hmm. being playing that role in the community outside of scientists. So I'm not articulating this very well because I, I hadn't think about it ahead of time, but I, I, I'm still formulating it, let's say. I've gotten really involved, as I know you have, in New York with um, – Miami's response to climate change. Yeah. And it's been really fascinating. What are you doing? I'm on the city of Miami's uh, climate resilience advisory board. Uh-huh. And I have a project at that's with seed money from the University of Miami looking at hyper-local adaptation to climate change on a neighborhood scale. Neighborhood scale is what hyper-local means? Yeah, okay. that's what we call it. Okay. Um, and I have been involved in a couple really important NGOs in Miami serving on board of directors, Miami Waterkeepers one. Uh -huh. And um, you can, I mean, Miami is, there are, I would say three or four activities, meetings, workshops every week in Miami related uh -huh. to climate change. How many of them do you go to? A lot. Yeah. 
And since when, by the way? How long? Since when did you get sucked I into I joined this, this board uh, a year ago. Well, this is a new thing you're talking about. I would say within the last two years. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like once I was in, it was, you know, it's been really interesting, super steep learning curve. Yeah. And, oh, I should back up. The main reason I got interested in this, I'm sorry, I'm like a little all over the place, but no, no. was, okay, um, I was involved in a citizens group in Coconut Grove, which is where I live. Mm. A group of people got together and said, not for purposes of climate, but said, we want we want to dictate what our community looks like in 2030. We want to have a vision and we want, so we, we don't want outside developers to come in and sort of dictate what the... The, the trajectory of our community. We want to have a voice in it. And um, so it's, it's called Grove 2030. It's a citizens group. Mm -hmm. And as part of that, they really wanted to do something about climate change. And I was kind of, you know, I had little kids and I don't have a lot of time for, you know, I really enjoyed doing work and working with the students and teaching. And I had, I was an associate dean, so it took up all my time. Oh my and, gosh. Yeah. And so um, I wasn't really involved. And then one of the people in the organization said, would you be willing to chair a committee that will write a climate response plan for Coconut Grove? Mm -hmm. And so I, then I was chairing these committee meetings and saying like, let's do, you know, let's look at the risks, see where the vulnerabilities are, come up with some solutions, bring it to the city. And so you, right. But so so you said yes, so despite said, yeah. everything. Yes, to, to so, something that's no, a lot of work. So the the big tr the big change was I rotated out of my job as associate dean, yeah. and Trump got elected. Okay. And I was like, oh my god, we have to do. <laughs> like I think many other people. Yeah. Like I can't just not be involved. I hear you. And so that was, I would say, like a big turning point. Was like we need to do something here. Okay, wait a second. So, so I feel like now we have to step back for a minute um, and fill in a little bit of like the 20 years in between. So <laughs> okay. just really quickly, because uh, I want to, okay, the, the right. stuff you're talking about now is, the, is, is yeah. like the most important, but, yeah. but, but not everybody knows your whole life story. So, so you finished your PhD at Lamont. I seem to remember you went yes. to France for a year or two. Year and a half. Year yeah. and a half. Mm -hmm. You had a postdoc yeah. there. Right. Is there anything important we should say about um, that? Or It wasn't super productive. I was yeah. still working with Richard and Mark. I, um, it was a good personal growth time. I was, you know, like I was actually my current husband was living in New York at the time. So I was alone and I was like, I had a lot of free time. So I was, you know, right. went to museums and traveled and did all stuff. And I don't know, should we say anything about the husband? You met him at Oh, Kenny Lamont. Broad? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely, yeah, I would say, you know, uh, Yes. He was an intellectual influence on me when I say things like, do we need more science in order to get people to right. do something? Because so, but, as I would say, that's his research that's infiltrated right. my mind. Sort of climate impacts and anthropology. And so I can't remember what's his a field actually I would is. say like decision making right. related to social science with his decision making related to um, environmental issues. And he his own particular expertise is in ethnographic anthropological research right. so like talking to people and finding out yeah how they make decisions okay but anyway so you um so you go to france you come back 
Yeah, so I didn't get uh, much done in France. I ended up writing a couple papers with Mark and Richard yeah. while I was in France. And <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I had a, it was a growth experience. Kind yeah. of depressing too because I was really lonely in France. Yeah. I was happy to come back to New York. <laughs> yeah. So you came back to Lamont for one year. For one year. I was that was right around. Right. I had just gotten there, I think. Yeah. Um looking and for then jobs. Yeah. You were looking for a job and then you went to Miami at that Point, right? A year later, yeah. So I was later. interviewing for jobs in that year. I mean, that was your next job, was my answer. Yeah, yeah. Right. I had an opportunity, a couple opportunities, but they they didn't work well for me and Kenny. But we moved to Miami, and they actually hired him as a research professor. Yeah. And um, and they they hired me as an academic professor, and they created a position for him. So yeah. That was I mean, a actually, good I move. think. In the modern, I mean, Miami, your department has done amazingly well right. at building this phenomenal, yes. what at that time was a young yes. group in yeah. especially tropical right. meteorology and oceanography. And it seems like a lot of it was due to their willingness to make an effort on two yeah. career hires, which yeah. a lot of other places weren't willing to do. And I right. wish, you know, we were better at it here. It's right. really, a, I think, in the modern times, yeah. it's the thing academic institutions have to learn yeah, how I, to do. I'm, so you've been there ever since. Yes. So here's here's a science thing I wanted to okay. talk about. I did plan one thing. Okay. Um, so the, a lot in your recent um, years, you've done two things that I've found really kind of striking and uh, amazing, frankly, um, startling. Two startling results that are sort of of the same flavor, which is first there was the paper or multiple papers, but it started with one about how. You can, it's, it's in a bit, it's following the same kind of thing you did with Richard, where mm. you stop the ocean dynamics, right? right, right. And see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Slab mixed layer models. You did right. a series of slab mixed right. layer model things. And the first one yeah. was to show that you get a fair amount of ENSO variability right. with a right. slab ocean, which was totally startling. I right. mean, I don't think anybody expected to see that. I would right. be surprised if you even told me that you expected to right. see it. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So you don't quite get all of the El Ninos and La Ninos. But you, but get you get an El Nino-like thing. You get a, for something that everybody has said, including, right. you know, all right. your mentors and right. you right. for many years, this is a coupled phenomenon. Right. And you could say, well, kind of not so much right. in a way. Right. And then the next one, a few years later, I guess you were on a roll. <laughs> With the slab model. <laughs> you went out after the Atlantic yeah. um, multi-decadal oscillation and showed the same mm. thing, even more strongly in that case. Right. So that's the yeah. long, the decadal multi-decadal variability in the Atlantic, which everybody calls the Atlantic multi-decadal oscillation, right. which is believed to be due to the fluctuations of the thermohaline right. circulation. In other words, changes in the ocean circulation. And mm -hmm. you show that you don't really need those right. to get almost all the at least recent historical signal mm -hmm. that people are excited mm -hmm. about. So there's this theme in your research um, of what is the role of the ocean. Right. And if I go back to the thermostat, I mean, this is why I was going and reading your papers last night. And so this is, here's Amy's first paper in her modern, you know, um, her modern form, right? Uh, the ocean th thermostat. And the last sentence of the abstract is, these results suggest that the role of ocean dynamics should be included in any discussion of the regulation of the tropical climate. So early on, you're kind of saying, ocean dynamics right. is important for this particular thing right. in right. a way that people haven't recognized right. and that had an impact. But later, right. Right. like you seem to have turned on the ocean. Like, what well, you, you know, I, I was trying to think of like, yeah. a, the Stephen Colbert version was like, Amy, why do you hate the ocean <laughs> so much? <laughs> what did it ever do to you that you're going after it now in your modern? I, I've had people say that when I was introduced by my colleague, Igor Kamenkovich, who's an oceanographer, famous, famous pedigree of oceanographer father. And he read my title saying the 
ocean is not necessary to produce the Atlantic multi-decade oscillation or something like that. And he said, it breaks my heart to say this. And then I w- I'm always quick to say some of my best friends are oceanographers. So I really don't have anything against the ocean. I love the ocean. And I, I just need to say that. Um, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, I, I, you can trace the idea back to my first work with Arnold, which where we were trying talking about global climate and looking at these small-scale ocean processes. And I was like, how does that work? How, how can one little region of the ocean draw, you know, wag the whole dog? Right. I was not convinced at the time. Yeah. And that, now, the great exception to that, I would say, is the tropical Pacific. Where well, although you've taken a okay, but I would baseball I, bat to that one. I too, would but. no, I would like to, <laughs> I would like to qualify that that the the finding that there's enso like variability. Yeah, it's the variability without ocean dynamics is much weaker. Yeah, on interannual timescales. Now, when yeah. you get to decadal, and this is where I think that work actually has some like really s- strong legs on decadal timescales, the Thermocline is not um, actually is not um, uh, feeding back in a positive way on the tropical climate variability um, yeah. in the same way. And so once you get to decadal and longer timescales, and even in the tropical Pacific, then the variability of the slab model starts to look a lot like the real world and yeah. the coupled model. But on the interannual timescales, I mean, you won't, you don't get the magnitude of SST anomalies and, and, you know, associated rainfall anomalies, you don't get the magnitude of variability um, without the coupling of, through the ocean. Yeah. And I, I should say here that um, your work on the AMO, it, it may or may not surprise you to hear that I have been giving a whole bunch of talks about it, um, about your work. I mean, oh, I okay. say this is not my stuff. This is right. Amy and okay. Mark and whoever. Yeah. Um, because um, I get asked to talk to people studying hurricane right. risk, mm-hmm. and they really want to know like Which where it's it going? going. And so this story is super relevant. Yeah, and it gets a lot of. I mean, when I yeah. showed this to people, your results, right. um, fully attributed. Right, um, it gets a lot of uh, interest. I mean, it's very powerful stuff, and it has huge implications because what you're this message right. is that. The, whereas the, the Atlantic has fluctuated up and down a couple of times and hurricane activity has gone with mm-hmm. it. So I'm summarizing the story, which includes your story, but also the hurricane part of it. So the 50s and 60s in the Atlantic right. were really active. The 70s and 80s were really yeah. quiet. Yeah. And then it got active again in the late yeah. 90s, 2000s, kind of up to now, although there was kind of a quiet right. period in the middle there. And people really want to know what's going to happen. And and But most people have believed that that fluctuation was natural. Right. And what you've shown... I think pretty convincingly, and I say this having sat through, and we organized a whole meeting about right. it. You were there, and we had both sides fighting it out. I wasn't right? there because oh, you weren't Irma. There. Oh yeah, right, right. Because Irma <laughs> came through, but Mark did it. Yeah, um, you weren't there, but you were yeah. there spiritually, yeah. and yeah. Um, and your your results were were debated at length. Um, you know, is that actually this is human influence that that right. that active period um, was uh, th- that the quiet period in the seventeen days and eighties in particular. Right. Um, was likely caused by aerosol cooling of the oceans, which was mm-hmm. anthropogenic and then went away w- with the Clean Air Act and all that. Um, and some contribution from volcanic aerosols, too. Yeah. Uh, volcanic aerosols, yeah. too. Yes. 
But the impl- and, and this, these some of this idea had been around before. Yeah. I mean, Carrie Manuel had said this about the Atlantic yeah. too, but you you put it in a much more general framework, and it you know made it um, a little you know made it stronger. And uh, the implication, if, if you take this as literally as you can take it, is that it's not going back down again. Right. So that's the conclusion that I mean, I I haven't quite had the confidence to say that out loud until very recently. But that's uh-huh. but that's and you know I'm not sure because there's right. still a lot there still is internal variability. Right. right. You know, so it's not to say we won't have quiet hurricane right. periods, but right. we just sort of had one in the mid 2000s. Right. Not mid 2000, late late 2000s. Um, but uh, yeah, so this well, is a big deal. I mean, I I would say there's there's another caveat there, which is the Atlantic's probably going to keep getting warmer. But yep. what does that in terms of surface temperature? Yeah. But what is the environment? How is the hur- environment for the hurricanes going to invo- evolve? So back to this question about you know what happens in the Pacific. Right. And and so you know does how, how does the how does the thermodynamic structure of the atmosphere and the, you know, the wind structure of the atmosphere evolve? And what I would say now is that this kind of notion that hurricanes track SST may break down. I think Gabe's work has kind of shown this, that, that we can't, and we've been looking at this again for Florida rainfall too, is that, you know, there's this, that Florida rainfall tracks the AMO in the historical period. Right. But that doesn't mean that the AMO is a good predictor for how things are going to evolve, evolve in the future. Yeah. No, the relative the relative versus absolute SST, I mean, we've worked yeah. on that too. Yeah. But nonetheless, I mean, still, the cool period in the in the 70s and 80s yeah. was, was relative. SST. And so there's, unless something uh-huh. else happens, we're not likely to have that particular right. yes. scenario. The other yeah. thing, actually, which didn't occur to me until just this minute that I probably should be saying when I talk to people about this, right. is if you're right about the tropical Pacific, it's even worse right. for Atlantic hurricanes, yeah. right? Because it would be La Nina-like and that right. would... So actually, the hurricane risk situation... If that we, would reduce if, the shear over... That's Actually, right. we should look at that with, uh, you know, so Richard, when you talk to him is, I don't know what the status of his recent paper is, but he's, he's saying that the tropical Pacific, you know, yeah, the idea that it should go more La Nina-like, but right. how does that play out when the rest of the world is warming in terms of well, cheer or, I mean, I, uh, so I haven't done a, over I haven't the studied Atlantic. this in detail, but I'm pretty sure a La Nina effect on the Atlantic is still going to be the La Nina Robust. effect on the Atlantic. Yeah. I mean, I don't see why it would change. There's, I mean, what are the other, is that, that's the main driver of interannual variability in shear. Are there other yeah, influences? Yeah, there's other influences, but that's a big right. one. I'm just yeah. saying that's the another yeah. thing that would go the bad direction for the Atlantic, if you guys are right. So while we're, before we leave this, topic and get back to um political things um one one thing i want to see if you have some thoughts on is as you've worked on these different things so you you've touched on atmospheric science and climate physical oceanography and paleo in your career and your work has had these implications about the role of the ocean the relative role of the tropics and so you're hitting this sort of nerve, raw nerves of different communities in the mm-hmm. sense that every one of Amy's high-profile papers tells somebody that their stuff either is or isn't important. You know, the thing right. they've been working on their whole life either is or isn't as important as they think it is in yeah. a way that's often quite right. um, dramatic yeah. uh, by the standards of scientific papers, most of which right. don't have that kind of <laughs> – most of which are incremental and right. not that – 
So I'm sure you must have, you know, you've already told a couple stories of mm-hmm. making people a little mad. Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you have more. Yeah. I'm just curious about your thought about like the relationship between the science and the social dynamics of these different fields and how, you know, people get upset because their stuff is, you know, how, how yeah. does that influence either? Yeah. I mean, in, let's say in the best case scenario, it's really exciting. You know, it, it, it means it's, it's in the best case scenario, it's a, uh, dynamic and fun interaction. Yeah. And I can think of plenty of times, like for example, with Manabi, where his climate model was making El Nino-like response to two times CO2. And we were arguing for this thermostat, which was producing a La Nina-like response to CO2. So we, but, and we had, we brought all these people together and we, um, another part of that was that Alexi Kaplan's new data set, um, SST reconstruction was at the time showing a La Nina-like 20th century temperature trend. I think that was, that was, what put that thermostat mechanism into real relief as a, as a important, um, you know, p- potentially important mechanism to explain the real world. So just for the uninitiated, yeah. this Alexei's work is going back to historical sources, yeah. digging out old data and sort of synthesizing them and putting to, together to, to build a longer history of right. the tropical Pacific. And filling in gaps um, based on yeah. observed correlations between different spots. So and just like, going back further in yeah. time in the historical record, yeah. sort of 100, yeah. 200 right. years. Right, right, 150 years. Yeah. Um, and so, so... Um, I remember a meeting, I think Dan Schrag organized it because he was interested in the tropical Pacific, brought Mark and me and Richard and Alexi and and then a bunch of people, uh, Tom Knutson and Suki Minabi and a bunch of people from GFTL all in the room together. Probably Gabe, uh, maybe, probably Gabe wasn't there yet. Uh, I can't remember who else. Maybe Tom Delworth. Or, and like really debated out. And I remember uh, Suki being so upset about Alexi's data set because there was a big point in the middle of the tropical Pacific that he kept calling a cockroach. That's a cockroach in the data. <laughs> um, but you know, it was dynamic and fun. Yeah. Um, and, um, well, I guess none of they, none of them felt that their careers were threatened right, quite. Yeah. Right. Um, I find it really interesting with this AMOC Atlantic idea that it's people are really tied to it in a way that almost seems, um, uh, like weird. <laughs> well, but I mean, so much of the history of paleoclimate is tied yeah. to this in a way. I mean, I don't think yeah. your work invalidates all that. But, no, but I. But nonetheless, it's like you're rocking a pretty big boat there. But isn't it? Aren't you? I mean, as scientists, when someone comes along, and if you can set aside the like the ego thing and says, "Well, let's look at it differently," yeah, isn't that? fun i mean isn't You'd that hope. yeah I'm with so you. like You'd what hope. i'm saying it in an, i think you would do that if yeah. somebody came along and said adam your you know mechanism that you've proposed for you know the mjo is like is what if we looked at it through this lens and yeah. what you've been doing is part of that but so what i would say is though if you read the literature it's it's i mean there's a lot of confirmation bias yeah and it's just to be honest and and less of people saying, how can this idea be wrong? Yeah. And and you just don't find that. And that's, to me, it, that's really disappointing. Well, I think a lot of it, of people's reaction, there's a lot of different things that go on, but people's 
ego is, I think, too simple a word for it, but I mean people's level of security in their own right. career and maybe even life comes into it. Right. I mean, there are scientists mm-hmm. who do react in the way right. that you said, people who are not, you know, who recognize that it's all about ideas. And right. even if the story is a little more right. complicated right. than they believed for the first part of their right. career, you know, that's fine. Right. We move forward and we're right. all learning and it, you know, right. but they're not everybody reacts that yeah. way. Some people yeah. feel threatened. Yeah. And so you get, yeah. I mean, I've seen that myself in you response have. to your work. Oh, I mean, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think I, anything yeah. I've done has had that right. much of a reaction, but you're, I yeah. mean, I've seen that. But it's still, at the end of the day, I would say it's still, it's, it's so stimulating to be in, you know, right at the center of a debate. And it's, I yeah. feel, you know, lucky to be able to, to be able to be engaged in that way yeah. as opposed to just, um, you know, a lot of what we do in science is like one more paper, one more paper, one more paper, but to really, to really have, have debates live ongoing, you know? Yeah. One more thing before we get back to the political stuff, um, mentoring, Mm because I saw you got a prize for it. Uh Uh-huh. Anything you want to say about that part of your job? I mean, how, how is it? been did you know how to do it right away no i still don't (laughs) well apparently somebody thinks you do um it's you know every student is i'm relearn mentoring all over again every time yeah and you you know you bring some wisdom to it that you've gained over the years but yeah then and looking back you realize oh my god how much i messed up so many ways i should have done things so differently but if you look at it as a process yeah. It, it then that's how you can wrap your head around you know mistakes you've made or yeah. um, how lucky you've gotten in certain ways or do you know do you have have you had I, students who've really struggled and oh yeah and what do you do and did it work well one of the things so I've spent we had a seeds grant or sorry an NSF advance grant um, at Miami and through that we've done a lot of workshops on mentoring and I think one of the things that I one of the outcomes is is like you said, students that are good mentees will be successful no matter who the mentor is. Right. But it's as about getting... As long as you don't mess them up. You can, I mean, you can... Well, you can you, mess them up. That's true. You can, true. You can yes. throw stuff in their yes, way. But exactly. so as long as you have a sort right. of do no right. harm. Right. Right. Yeah. right. But I think, you know, one answer to that is um, teaching students to be, giving them the skills to be better mentees. Yeah. And so we've put a lot of effort in that, in it our school and okay. I have in my group is to, you know, empower students to, you know, dictate the mentoring relationship. So how do you do that? What do you tell them? Um, you, you give them certain like skills, communication skills, you give them, you empower them to, you know, make demands of their advisors. I mean, by just telling them it's okay to do that or how to, um, I think so certain skills like they um like coming to meetings with agendas mm. just certain just the some of the basics of things are coming to coming to a meeting with with an agenda of things that you want to cover um sort of taking the emotion out of it mm. Because it, it's such a scary um, relationship. Because it's like the, a power relationship. Sure. You yes, know, and of it's course. no matter how nice the person is. I mean, Mark, how could he be nicer? Although he is tough, I would say, intellectually. But <laughs> yeah. um, he, well, he, he wasn't always nice. I would say he's a nice person. But, <laughs> um, 
no matter how much of an effort it's the advisor makes and yeah. they don't always make an effort right it's That's still a scary relationship yeah there's still this power and this, and uh, you can you can weaken that scariness somehow well i think the one way to weaken it is by trying to give students the authority to say like one of the things we do is guidelines like, uh -huh. this is what I expect of you as your advisor, and this is what you can expect of me uh -huh. as, a as my student. Uh -huh. And just laying that out in the beginning, and that opens up this communication where you're on, I think, a more, yeah. you know, you take a little bit of that scary power dynamic out of it yeah. and just say, these are the rules. And again, it's like, um, it's, it seems a little forced, you know, we're so, I think, so unprofessional in a way about, you know, there's, look in the corporate world about how to manage people, right? There's like school, business schools about managing people. Yeah. And we don't have any training. And all we do is imitate our advisors for better or for worse. I know. And um, so, so to try to give people like, this is how you communicate with people. This is, you know, these are communication styles. When you come in, here's a... Here's a spectrum of things from being totally prescriptive to being completely passive. And you can sort of think about the way that you're communicating with your student. Do this, do that, do this. Why didn't you try this? Versus, you know, over time, maybe easing back and saying, what do you think about what should we do? Just little things that we um, that might seem obvious once they're said, but you don't think about them in the context of your you know, your profession as a mentor. So I want to get back to the present moment and your broader engagement. Mm -hmm. I guess, well, but maybe we can spend a couple minutes working back into that by asking. So from pretty early on, your research, although it wasn't exactly about anthropogenic global warming, but the connections were pretty, mm -hmm. even now looking back on it, are pretty apparent. And right. I'm sure you saw that yeah. too. And that was a big motivation for me. Right. But something I ask everybody, and I want to ask you too, is, and I think I know the answer, but I want you to say it, is to what extent, if at all, did you choose this field out of any sense that it mm -hmm. was relevant to human society mm -hmm. or any social consciousness? Was that present in your thinking, or was it just science that you thought was cool? And It was foremost in my thinking, I really? would say. Yeah, because I was, so, you know, we're talking, I went to college in 1989. Mm-hmm. A year after Jim Hansen testified in front of Congress, and you were aware of that because it was at you know because you were here. I was at, I was at Columbia. Right. Okay. In fact, I think I took an undergrad class at GIS, but I definitely had interactions with Jim mm -hmm. during my PhD. Okay. But even earlier on, I mean, it was uh, it was a, I had a sense of urgency about the topic at the time. Really. Yeah. And I was... You You're know, unusual in that. Most people don't of, of our generation would not say this, I don't think. Really? My small sample thus far, yeah. I mean, it was definitely... I wouldn't say... It, within the science community here at Columbia that I was in, yeah. working at Lamont, it was definitely... I mean, Wally was a giant figure in that. I mean, he was really... He was very involved from... I mean, he was an author on the Charney Report. Was he? Okay. Yeah. Mm. And um, he was, I would say, leading, a key leading figure in saying this is a problem that we have to confront, you know, okay. as humanity. So you were right there. I was right in it. 
right? I would ground zero for that. Um, uh, So while I was teaching his book, How to Build a Habitable Planet, that Mm -hmm. I took as a freshman, um, and I remember, um, so I was, I, I wanted to work on that topic. That's what I applied to grad school for. I wasn't doing really undergrad research in that specifically because I was doing these seismology experiments. And, um, right. But I was, it was very much at the forefront of my thoughts. Yeah. And I went, remember thinking, do I go to graduate school? I remember talking to somebody, some professor at, at Columbia, probably in the physics department, maybe Alan Blair, who was my advisor. Um, or or uh, Jacob Shama, Shaham, who is also, they were both in the physics department. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> going to them and saying, I really want to work on this problem, but I don't know where my, I'm most be most effective. And they all say, get a PhD and you'll be most effective in the problem and solving the problem uh-huh. with a PhD. Yeah. And so I, I took that Did advice. Did you think that was good advice? I mean. Where, I, from where you sit now? Well. In terms of my life, in terms of my life, yeah, yes, because I can't imagine, like, I can't, I, I'm so grateful for having been able to do this work. I mean, it's But let's a, ask in a different way. Okay, if someone yeah. said, if someone were to come to you today and, and said, say, I want to do something about this problem, I want to be effective in making the world a better place, and yeah. climate is the thing that motivates me, would you say, go be a scientist? No. In fact, I have a student now who did the opposite thing. He was a, he d- was doing a, a, he did a master's in climate and society at um, mm-hmm. University of Chicago. Yeah, I don't remember what the pro- climate policy or something like that. And he said um, he applied to grad school. Like, why are you applying to grad school with me? Or you know, why are you applying to do climate dynamics? And he said, because I really want to know why the climate changes. Yeah, and he, you know, understands, you know economics he, he has he's much more educated in all of the you know say climate and society issues than i am right. but he really just wants to know how the climate system works because he right. found himself asking that and so that's what i do in my career so if you want to know you know about the earth system and the climate system then come do a phd with right. me you also have a certain amount of authority that you can right. bring to a wide yeah. range of yeah. situations even if that doesn't really call on right. your actual abilities as a scientist. I mean, in right. other words, when you walk into the Miami board of whatever, right. they don't need you to do research, right? They don't need right. you to sh- tell them the very no. latest thing yeah. or to use your, right. you're just there as somebody who under, you know, has some knowledge, has some authority right. Right. and is hopefully, you know, is a mature adult that can right. bring a certain gravity to the right. situation. And so you look for ways to use that. Right. Right. And and to me, that's the calculation we all have to use and not misuse too. Yeah. So because like when you ask me, you know, don't ask me what the best way to design our city for, uh, you know, I'm not an I'm not a you know an urban engineer or yeah. So you do I do find myself in situations where I'm asked to comment on things that I don't have expertise on. And a lot of times I say, I I can't. Yeah, this is a fascinating one because um, on the one hand, you're absolutely right. There's a huge 
temptation, and you see many academics succumb to yes. it when they get some kind of fame or notoriety, right. they suddenly think they're an expert on right. everything yeah. because people will listen to them if they right. act like they are. Right. So you, we, we all want to not do that if right. we have any amount of self I can't uh, imagine you reflection. doing that. Well, and I think you can also, you know, we, uh, I know this sounds very contrived, but I do, in my, in my um, teach a class on, on science policy that I co-teach with, um, I have Paul Higgins from the AMS Science Policy Program um, give lectures to our oh, students. Oh, he comes down from... No, he does it by Skype, but we have oh, a whole curriculum. So We've done it like five times or something. Oh, yeah, so, I know Paul. Yeah. yeah, so it's it's really, I can share the curriculum with you. It's great yeah. and he's awesome. Um, but, you know, he's a big advocate and if you talk to him about, you know, this is my science hat and this is my citizen hat. And I, right. you know, I um, have, am entitled to a position as a citizen. Yeah. And, and then it becomes hard for the people that you're talking to you to separate, you know, I'm really not an expert in X, Y, and Z. No one else is, but here's my opinion. So he really does in his practice as a science policy person, puts on a science hat and then puts on his citizen hat. And he says that he prefaces things by saying that. I think that's, I had to do that the other day at a, at a meeting where we were talking about the citizens climate lobby legislation, where somebody asked our board to endorse this and asked the Miami city commission to, you know, pass a resolution endorsing this policy and say, I'm a scientist. I understand the causes of climate change. If we don't stop burning greenhouse or stop producing greenhouse gases we're not going to turn around sea level rise yeah and even if we do that it was going to take a long time so i can say that as yeah. a scientist yeah but then i have to put on my citizen hat and say you know i i'm not a policy expert i don't know if this is the best strategy i don't know the pros and cons of this as a policy tool yeah but i i am in favor of this because it seems like a reasonable response to this problem that I am an expert on. Right. Uh, it's hard to do that on every single issue, but um, on that one, I knew where I stood. <laughs> right. So, uh, uh, so to do the, so, so Trump gets elected. Mm. You have. I want to sort of yeah. uh, grasp the the scope of your engagement right. here. So you, so you feel like I got to do something. Then somebody asks you to be on a local board. Right. You do it. Now you yeah. got on a whole bunch of them, yes. it sounds like. Yeah. And all of them are of this general flavor of climate right. adaptation. Yeah. What should we do? And yeah. you basically, it's not that you come in with a particular agenda. It's just you're saying, I'm going to put myself in the room as somebody right. who can contribute something that they need and and I'm you know, right. learning by doing. Right. And, right. I, I'm also can play a role as a bringing science not necessarily my science yeah. to the table. So if I I have access to university professors of lots of different disciplines, so I can I can bring that perspective. So even if it's not my science, right. I understand the importance of research and you know data that we have available or new data collection to a problem. I get a lot of personal satisfaction, like you said, from being involved in trying to push a community to think ahead yeah. <laughs> on this issue as opposed to being reactive or not not responsive. Yeah. Um, I mentioned earlier it's a learning curve, so it's intellectually satisfying to yeah. understand different sectors. I've spent my whole career in academia. Yeah, and I think 
so can we talk about the fact that you were not only doing this, but doing this in Miami, which right. if you had to pick a place right. in the country or maybe even the planet that's at the top of the list of being in trouble, yeah, this is a place. So um, I'm sure that's, you know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, obviously, right. but like, how does that influence your... Oh, that's... I mean, tell me about Miami. Ah. <laughs> uh where to begin do we have another two hours no but <laughs> um let's see it's exciting um there's a lot of i wasn't involved in city government issues beyond like protesting developments in certain regions and tearing down historic buildings which is always something that i've cared about um uh that but so I was really an outsider, but, um, there's a lot of really smart people in different government positions. Mm -hmm. Miami's weird because it's chopped up in municipalities in a way that's, that's really challenging. Mm -hmm. So there's a county government and then there's municipalities, there's a city mm -hmm. of Miami, and then there's all these different small municipalities that have, and, and it gets very complicated about who controls what. And then in Miami, there's also this sort of, uh, well, I'm, I wonder how much, and this is a question for you, I guess, how much you see of this in New York is the slippery slope to corruption because now there's money in the problem of climate yeah. adaptation. And so there are, I think, people that are jockeying for business. Yeah. And in Miami does not have a good history of that, of, of maintaining like a transparent process and really high quality standards for government handouts, basically. Yeah. And we're, I think at that point when, now that there's money at the table where, where you can start seeing that slippery slope happen. Yeah. But there's a lot of good people working on the problem. And then there's, like you said, this problem that nobody knows what to do. Right. I mean, when I, I guess what I was, so, and I should say, I have not done the kind of things you're doing. I haven't done this kind oh, of community engagement. York. No, I mean, my wife works for the city, yeah. so I hear a lot about right. Right. it through her, but right. I don't, um, I haven't had the same kind of experience. Um, but I guess what I was thinking was, I mean, when I, but I do a lot of public speaking and public writing, right. you know, I haven't talked to people right. and I'm in the position of being a scientist in the room right. in various situations. Yeah. And people often ask, some version of the question, you know, how much trouble are we in? How yeah. soon? How yeah. bad? Yeah. And it's always a very hard question to answer, but right. I would imagine in Miami it's right. that hard to the second or third power. Right. And I mean, so you live there, right? You look out on the city. Right. Um, I guess real estate prices are still good. You know, I, yeah. I, I heard somebody once say maybe there's one mortgage cycle left in my, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. What, how to make that projection, right. but it's got to be ground zero yeah. on some level. And does that have any, well, <laughs> does that recognition affect you in any way? <laughs> well, I mean, and here's a, another layer of that is, is, um, you know, so you should probably be talking about moving people yeah. out, out of harm's way. Yeah. Facilities, just, people, whatever. Yeah. Um, and, but, but that is not on the table. Yeah. Um, City government does not want to say, right. Let's 
move out of the city. Right. Nobody wants to say that anywhere. There's a, t- there's a tension there. But, yeah. yeah. And no, then there's also this maintaining the, the fact that this there's no income tax in Florida. So everything runs on property taxes. Oh, uh, yeah. And so you have to be very careful about your property tax base. Yeah. And perceptions. Uh, we know real estate, you know, value is, you know, tied in ways to perceptions and irrational ways, just like the stock market is, you know. Yeah. And so um, that's a really tricky, you know, so I think the way to think about it is these timescales, you know, like we can, and they say we can adapt to up to, they, the city of Miami says we can adapt to up to two feet of sea level rise. When does that happen? They well, can adapt to up to two feet. So then what are they, what, what, then what? when it's three feet? They say that they, they say that their time horizon is like 40 years. So, you know, that's okay. just like a science question is when does two feet of sea level rise come? Is it 40 right. years, 60 or 20 or, um, right. But so that's sort of their their planning horizon. Yeah, that's that's the way people are operating now. Fair enough, I guess. But I mean, I mean you I have know. to do something. Yeah. I, at the end of the day, you know, it's like it's unrealistic to say we're just going to abandon Miami. That doesn't even make sense. Right. And so a phased approach does make sense. And how much can a city plan beyond forty years, really, or yeah. even twenty years? I mean, forty years is a really long planning horizon for a city. I mean, this is. I would say the way that I wrap my head around it is that can we do something sensible, forward thinking for a time horizon that's, you know, 5, 10, 15 years in terms of making a city that makes sense for the people living in it in this changing environment? Can we, can we do things towards that goal now? And for me, that would be an accomplishment because... Yeah. Up until now, Miami has not been designed that way. It has right. been really, I would say, uh, very subject to the whims of develop, develop uh, real estate development, um, including you know economic forces from all around the world, yeah. like that. And it, it, to have that kind of uh, shift, which I see happening in Miami in the city government, of saying you know planning and and thinking about quality of life and they often couch it in terms of resilience so resilience is not just physical resilience but it's also resilience to economic shocks and resilience to um um you know uh well and you know affordable housing fits within the resilience I, i would say the resilience scheme as well so these you know if we can take successful actions that make that make quality of life for people in the next you know decade or two in Miami better and and design and start thinking about designing a city that is works for the people in this changing environment it seems like your answer is the sort of think global act local mm-hmm. um and that Sounds like it's working well, um, for you. And I think doing something and like, and it has, it has all intangibles. Like you said, being a person that's motivated and doing something, it's also your role. And I'm very sensitive to this as a, you know, role model in, yeah. in the community or in my family or, you know, with my nieces and nephews and my children and, and, um, my students and I'm doing something. So I action is, is, I would say is an important, 
part of my career right now, this action in Miami, local action, let's say. But it always, in whatever other activity in my career that I've done, which is like being an associate dean for a while, which is like a whole separate full-time job, you know. Yeah. The the essence, like you said, of this um, rigorous pursuit of knowledge and, you know, understanding of the earth system and um is something that you know I, I would say is has has defined me as a person and is always going to be part of, and informs all of these other things that I do yeah. and but above all it just feels so um you know, fortunate in in a way to have that as the central part of you know who I am as a person and in my career yeah I don't know if I'm saying that well but what I'm saying is that there's you know that there's a balance of things and you there's lots of different things you can do in your career but that if I if it hasn't come across that that central pursuit of discovering something new and fundamental about the way the earth works is is the is the main driver for me no it's come across okay <laughs> I'm with you. No, we are. We're so fortunate to do yeah, it. We are. Yeah, and I try to, I try to communicate that too to the and at the end people of the day, who, people who are making yeah. these decisions about their lives. Like you can do a lot of different things, but right, whatever else, this is this yeah. is a great privilege. And yeah. so you know, you may right. may or may not, you know, want to go that way. But right. if you do, there's not a lot of other things like it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's well, yeah. Well said. Okay, why don't we leave it there? Okay. Thanks, Amy. (laughs) Thank you. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Wow. What a pleasure to talk to Amy Clement. The joy of science just radiates from her so much, but she's also someone who engages so deeply on so many other levels as a person and a citizen. My co-creator and creative director is Melanie Bielli. Our editing and audio post-production is by Duotone Audio Group, where our editor and post-producer is Dana Hom, and our audio engineer is Chrissy Lassiter. My creative consultant and spiritual advisor is Minnie Jardine, and our original music is by Eli Sobel. I'm Adam Sobel. This is Deep Convection. Deep Convection.